welcome to Coco Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Alma Mondi. Welcome, Dr. Mondi. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here, and it's great to connect with you, Dr. Sagadi. Thank you. I'm going to speak to Dr. Mondi's educational background. Dr. Alma Mondi has a bachelor's in early childhood and middle grades education. She has a master's degree in middle grades math and science. She has a doctorate degree in curriculum and instruction. She has worked in the field of education for over 20 years, specifically in middle grades. She has had roles that included a classroom teacher, instructional coach, and administrator. She has worked in different district types, including suburban, rural, and urban settings. She has taught students in general gifted and special educational settings in all four core academic subjects. Again, thank you, Dr. Mondi, for coming. Thank you. So we want to talk about the, for instance, the intersection of health and education for middle school aged African American girls who show lower levels of academic success because of non-academic factors that include health, poverty or trauma. Can you speak some to this? Yes, I like to address those nine academic factors because sometimes just in the classroom setting, you see a student not performing well and you may see them not have the qualities that you would want in a student that's ready to learn, ready to engage in the lesson. And so it doesn't mean that these students don't have the capabilities. It's just that many times they have some factors from their home life, the community that they're part of, that negatively affect their performance in the classroom. And so it might be that their home is not structured. So maybe they have just a lot of free time. And of course, as a young person, you're going to take advantage of that. You don't have the maturity to just manage yourself to self-regulate. That's what we need adults and parents in our life to be responsible for that component of our life development. And so you see students who do not have the parent or the home life that would help them perform good in the classroom or perform well or adequately or satisfactorily. And then it might be tempting to judge those students, to look down upon them and say, well, why can't they do it? What's going on? Get it together. And instead of realizing that there are factors in their life that they don't have control over, and it makes it extremely challenging for them to even just be in the school setting, for them to sit there, for them to get dressed in the morning, wake up, to attend school. And so these are the factors that I feel classroom school settings have to deal with and manage and unexpectedly sometimes because you're going there as an educator thinking okay I'm here to teach math I'm here to teach how to read and write but you have to deal with the whole student the whole person and realize that as I'm educating this person I need to find out what's going on in their life and what can I do to help them perform better in the time that I have them and a lot of times in education we say that we can't control what happens outside of the school hours we can't we have from for me it's from seven to three that's what I have and to try to focus my energy on what's happening outside of the school sometimes can feel daunting because you don't have any control over that. But what I do have control over is from seven to three. And if that means I need to connect with this student on a level that is a little bit more 
finding out what's going on in their life, listening to them, helping them to find things that will. And sometimes that'll be things like, you know, maybe they need something to eat. Maybe they need to be listened to to go see the counselor. Maybe they had something going on in their home that morning, two, three o'clock in the morning. We've had situations like that, that no one in the school building was aware of. And they need someone to talk to to just hear them out in order for them to perform better. And so that's what I mean by non-academic factors that really negatively affect the performance of our young students that are trying their hardest. And sometimes it's tempting to judge the families too, to say, well, why doesn't the mother care? Or why doesn't family? It's tempting to go down that path for those who may feel that they have skills or educated to think in that manner. But really, they do care. The Mm -hmm. families do care Mm -hmm. tremendously. They love Mm -hmm. them just like any other mother, father, Mm -hmm. caring parent would love their child. But, you know, the hierarchy of needs set in where you have to deal with water, shelter, food. Those are the foundational needs that parents are striving to make sure their children have. And then after that, you have to consider where is their time, their energy, what are they able to do beyond that? Sometimes it's limited and stifled because of, you know, lifestyle choices. And so as an educator, yes, our goal, we focus on educating the four content areas, but we also realize there are social emotional things that we have to educate. There are health concerns, sexuality that we have to deal with. We're dealing with the whole person. And so it takes really connecting with our students, really ensuring that we direct them in the proper direction with counselors or outside help in order to reach our students and reach our young people in a powerful way. Wow. As an OBGYN, by the time a young person in school comes to me, they have health issues. They have things ranging from severe menstrual cramps to possible sexually transmitted infections to at times teenage pregnancies. And I wonder from a professional perspective, if there could have been earlier interventions, either at the school level, definitely at the home level. But could you speak to maybe some of the things at the school level that could have been a point of intervention and maybe education to let this young person know actions and consequences of actions? Yes. So schools can decide on different, I guess, what you would call sex ed programs. It's not a part of the core curriculum, if you will. It is more so a program that a school or a district might adopt. And the programs are excellent, though. They are written. A lot of them are research-based, evidence-based. And when they do quote statistics on STDs or unhealth risk factors, they use the CDC to make those ideas come about. They don't just wing it. They are very factual and evidence-based. So those programs, the one that I'm a little bit familiar with is one that's called like choosing the best. And the way that it works typically is that you have a set of lessons in place that are age appropriate. And you have activities, explorations, and there's actual images and real life scenarios that are showed and presented to help students be educated because the number one factor sometimes is the education of these risk factors that students get involved in, sexual risk factors, that they're unaware of all the things that could go wrong by being involved in sex early 
in age before adulthood. And so some of the programs, like for example, they'll start very basic, like with decision-making, okay? They'll start off with when you have to make decisions about, you know, if you're going to play soccer and how much time it's going to take, or if you have to make a decision, you're playing games, it's late at night, but you have a test the next day. So they'll start off with things that a student might typically engage with and how a decision could lead to either a good outcome or a bad outcome. And the activities that would be involved with where students would identify, okay, so what are some personal things that you have made decisions in and, and what have you noticed about the outcome? So you'll start with those type of thinking patterns to help that are age appropriate to help the students connect your decisions have a direct impact on the outcomes of your life. And so then you connect it to social relationships. What do you look for in your relationships? And some of the programs, they offer video clips so that it's not just the adult speaking on it because the connection that the students make oftentimes is from their peer. An adult saying it is like, like Charlie Brown, wah, 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 you know? <laughs> and so it's like, whatever, you don't know anything. I know it all, I'm the, you know. And so when they're able to hear these video clips from their peers and see it and they're speaking their language, it connects and resides with this in the student a little bit more. And so then the activities are very short, they're engaging, but it connects to healthy choices from at the beginning stage, because many times some choices, they happen over time. There's a process to it. It's not just this immediate situation. And so... The programs are designed to meet those needs and to empower the students, educate the students, help them to be assertive with the positive things, to know the difference, to give them the words, the language, to tease apart things that can be easily confusing, like in relationships. You can say, I love this person, when really it's just a crush. You don't love, you have a crush on them. Or, you know, understanding the difference when you feel in peer pressured and even how to choose healthy relationships. What do you look for in relationships? So those type of questions being posed to students, helping them to reflect, helping them to have the language and helping them to see before things happen. We're talking about, there's an approach to do it where before anything can happen. And then there are the components of educating them. If you are involved, how safe are you being if you are involved? The program that, that I'm familiar with is abstinence-based, and it's not based on morals. It's really based on healthy choices. It's based upon statistics in terms of outcomes of life. So it's to help students just make better decisions, be aware of their relationships, and develop positive relationships with people as well. And just for example, and this is very important because there are some horrific stories that would tear your heart apart when it comes to young women, young girls, African-American girls, that you just would not want for any person. You wouldn't want it for your worst enemy because it's so tragic. There is a situation that I was made aware of where a young girl, sixth grade, she didn't even know that she was pregnant. No one in her family knew she was pregnant. And she ended up giving birth, stillbirth, to the baby in the toilet. And you can only imagine how traumatizing, that's traumatizing for a grown person, let alone a person who hasn't even made it to teenage years yet. 
And for them to not be aware, family, the child not to be aware, and then have to investigate afterwards, was this, how did this even come about? How did you get involved in this situation? To investigate those things. And so sometimes it's things going on in young people's life that they're not verbalizing, they're not saying, they're not talking about. But when you're able to provide programs and activities that help give space to those situations and address those matters, it really helps students to be able to speak out and they're able to write things down. Maybe they can't verbalize it because they're too scared or feel nervous about it, but they can write it out. Maybe they didn't have the language. They didn't have the words to say it, but when they see it presented to them, they're able to say, oh, that is what I'm feeling. That's what I'm going through. Now I have words for it. Now I can do something about it. They can feel normal because sometimes you can not realize how normal what you're going through is. And it can be with regarding how you feel about yourself because sometimes we have to deal with self-esteem. There are young girls in this school that I've worked in over the years that they feel differently about themselves, depending on their size, depending on how people may view them. And then what happens is they play those same thoughts through their minds and they don't realize that they're feeding themselves these negative thoughts and they have this negative bias towards themselves. And so what does that lead to? Possibly unhealthy relationships. But being taught what to look for, being taught how to think, how to reprogram your mind, having that explicitly delivered to you in the classroom really makes a difference for students. And they're able to connect with it, make a change, have the words for it, have somebody to speak to, request someone to speak to. It makes a huge impact for our students. So these programs are designed to address it in a way that will empower our students, educate our students, and hopefully lead to making better choices and being aware of healthy outcomes for themselves. Well, this is great. You talked about, you know, what I call positive imaging. And in my career, so many times I've seen a young person come to me and speak to something like a body odor when there's really nothing or a private parts odor when there's really nothing. And amongst young people, they could talk about it, make fun of them. And that makes them really feel very bad about themselves. And it could possibly lead to, you know, abnormal relationships because they're looking for acceptance and validation of who they are. And if they find somebody, whether it's the right person or not, it could develop into an abnormal relationship that could end in an abnormal sexual relationship or a teenage pregnancy. You know, I want you to speak more to, you know, how we can encourage young people to positive imaging and just solidify that aspect of themselves. Yeah, and that's a great point. A lot of times our physical attributes is what kind of our society gives a lot of attention to. And while that is a component of who we are, it is not all of who we are, right? Our identity and who we are resides in more than just our physical traits. We are people based on our, of course, our culture, of course, our experience, our interests. We can identify who we are by what we like, what we don't like. So one of the things that we try to speak to in individuals is to, yes, encourage their physical traits, whatever they may be, but to not make that's what is the end all be all. That's not what it's completely about. Who you are is beyond 
your physical traits. And so we try to really build up their natural strengths that they have in themselves and help them to identify because sometimes people don't know what their strengths are. And so ways to identify that and one activity there is where students are able to interview one another. What do you like to do? What do you find that is really enjoyable? And so having those types of conversations to understand what are my strengths? What do I like? What things about me beyond my physical traits that would make me who I am and that I should enjoy, respect about myself, appreciate about myself, realize that other people love these things about myself and to respect that. And on so many occasions in the school settings, I've had to encounter, it breaks my heart because I will see a wonderful young person that is, I mean, gleaming. Their eyes are beautiful. They have just a great personality, charming, energetic. But when I hear how they feel about themselves because of someone else, and often at times it will be because of physical traits, someone will come with a new haircut or their hair is not sitting right the way that they want to and how they feel about themselves, it eats them apart. They cannot function. They can't function at all. In one situation, we had a a young girl at the school with her father, a young African-American girl with her father and her hair wasn't done. And so she had like a rag on her hair that would cover it up. So something that you would possibly sleep in or keep at night so that your hair would stay in its style the next day. But she refused to go to school, refused to go into the classroom. And one of the rules that we have in the classroom, in the school is, you know, things on your hair we can't have, hats, things like that while you're in the building. And that also applies to if you're wearing a bonnet or things like that, not to wear it in the school building. So the young girl was so distraught because her hair wasn't done. The family didn't get her hair done. They did not have the funds or the ability to get it done. And she was losing out on education. She was losing out on opportunities to learn, to enjoy her young life. And so you have to address these types of things about a person and try to figure out, well, what is the solution for that? <laughs> what do you do? You have a father, don't the girl hair's not done. She's not in school. She, so how do you fix something like that? Those are tough situations. You don't, there's no book for that. So of course our, we have counselors, we have ladies in the building who know how to do hair, who can fix, help support that situation. If the family allows for it, you also have ladies that would, they would consider themselves define themselves maybe as plus size. And so there's certain attire that you would have to wear in the school setting so that it's not distracting for others. And there was one situation where a mother felt offended that her daughter, who was a plus size girl, couldn't wear a particular clothing that was tight fitting. And she thought it was due to her, her daughter's size. And I can understand that. And so when you have to address situations like that, you have to understand how the parent is feeling, how the child is feeling and what the goal is for the day and what's the best way to address that. And all of these things have to do with how somebody is feeling about themselves, how they feel about who they are, their body, their image. And it's a delicate matter and it's a day by day matter. And it's a matter that is often dismissed if a person is not in tuned, if a professional person is not in tune with the impact they may have, if they're dismissive about it and not gentle with it. We understand that the goal is, of course, to help the student get the learning that they need, get the education that they need. But sometimes there are unknown barriers there and we have to address them and figure out the best way to delicately handle this family, the parent, the student, and help them be successful in those situations. And so you listen. That's always the first thing. Listen to the issue that may be going on. 
empathize with the issue that's going on. I understand how you feel about that. I can understand your perspective on the matter. Let's see. Let's think of some ways that we can address this. Let's try to do this together and help work to be on the same team as the family and not opposing. Sometimes in those conversations, it's easy to be at odds with one another and not even know it. But instead, we need to we're on the same team. We have the same goal. Let's figure out a solution to address it so that we're building up this student. We're building them up, how they feel about themselves, how they carry themselves and really work to get them in the best situation so that they can feel good about themselves. They can go into the classroom ready to learn. And then that's putting them on the road for success, because we may feel like that one moment has not a big impact, but you don't realize it's moment after moment after moment after moment that really is leading the student. It could be leading them in the right direction or pushing them out and lead them in the wrong direction. Dr. Mondi, thank you so much for speaking to some of the issues that minority girls face, some African-Americans, especially some African-American girls being raised by just their dads. And I know with our foundation, we have received support from the Georgia Health Foundation in which we can provide doula services to low-income women. And doula services simply mean non-clinical pregnancy, labor, and delivery support for the women. And we're so grateful to them that we're able to do that. I wonder if we can, through our foundation, reach out and help Can you speak to some of the schools you've worked in, have done to help situations like that? Absolutely. Yeah, we have to be very mindful of how we spend money, of course. And we also have to be very respectful with how we offer the money to families. Because at no point, even if there is a need, how it's done is very important to us. We always want to show the families that we respect them, that we're offering this out of support. We're offering this to guide and to help your family, help a student. And so... I have been a part of a program where we're able to raise money through grants, through activities at the school, and we have funds where we're able to, during the holiday time, provide families with a variety of things. And so the process typically works where we ask teachers or staff members in the building, have you noticed that there's been a need? And sometimes we notice things because students may wear the same thing over and over again. It's not clean or there's a strong smell to it. Or you can tell that they often need a lot of food or have to hide food or have to collect food. You can tell through if they're alert, if they're sleeping all the time. There are different ways that needs are recognized just through observation. And so we kind of just put a net out there. Hey, have you noticed any needs in the community from our students? And then we go through the process of checking with our families. You know, hey, this is what we have to offer. We can get clothing, food, pay a bill, offer organization, connect you to an organization for support, whether that means getting Wi-Fi services, a laptop, actual help in a family if they need. For example, there was one situation where a family needed help with paying their electric bill because they couldn't wash clothes. They didn't have any lights on. And so being able to go to the electric company and pay the bill on their behalf and things like that. We go through that process, checking with the family. Once they say, yes, that's fine. We appreciate it. Then we gather items, 
created as a celebration, you know, gift giving, celebrate with our families and offer those type of resources. Now, we know that this is just a small part of the greater need because we're only able to do it certain times of the school year. Our hope is that as we meet those needs and help with those families, that it will guide those students to have a better academic setting, a better opportunity to learn, because we definitely believe as educators that education is empowering. It helps students get out of their situation so that it won't be generational. And so that's the type of approach that I've had experience with and helping our students, connecting them, helping them to get out of their tough situations. Sometimes it's just momentary. That's what we, we realize that. And other times we hope that it will put them on the right path for future support and guidance and better opportunity for them. Wow, Dr. Mondi, you are so knowledgeable in what you do. Can you speak to just your training and your education and, you know, how you got to this point in your professional career? Yes. So initially I went to school knowing that I love children, knowing that I really enjoy working with young people. So initially I thought I wanted to be a child psychologist of some sort, but then I realized I also enjoyed math. And so I had a cousin that just said, you know, why don't you be an educator? I said, oh yeah, maybe I'll try that. And so once I got into the education program at Clark Atlanta, I really just developed a love for it. And I specifically wanted, because I was so passionate about mathematics and I knew I wanted, I started off at early childhood. Then I went into middle grades because I thought, oh, I can, you know, meet the needs of students through mathematics a little bit stronger there and just enjoyed it tremendously. And so when I finished, I went into teaching right away after I graduated and had a good time. I taught in a predominantly what we call Title I schools, where you get federal funding because maybe there's low income in the community, and so you get a little bit of extra money as a school to support those communities. So I worked in the middle school, Title I community, and it's not that you just go in there and you sit and get, you know, students sit down and get this information. It doesn't work that way. I learned that very quickly. And so um, you have to be prepared for your young people because they are very vibrant active, energetic, and you're ready to deliver some great content and they're not ready to hear that. And so after you get the science of teaching, you have to have learned the art of teaching. It works both ways. There's an art to it. There's a way to connect with the young people and make it exciting and engaging for them, connected to their lives, make it relevant for them. So after a few years of teaching in the classroom, I decided to, I realized that I needed to further my education And so I added on, um, went back to school and got my master's in middle grades, mathematics and science education at Wesleyan College and enjoyed that tremendously because I felt like at that time there was a lot of changes happening in education as well as technology, the advancements in technology and how technology and education were coming together. It played an important role in my ability to be more effective in the classroom. And so that was very powerful for me. And then I was approached by one of my supervisors, the principal. 
I guess he recognized some things in the classroom that I had to offer, and he wanted me to be an instructional coach to help guide our classes, our students to be more successful. And so I left the classroom after 10 years of teaching and went into a role as an instructional coach. And that's many times unfamiliar to people. Uh, What is an instructional coach? What do you do? And I had to learn that too for myself. Like, what am I doing as an instructional coach? I don't really understand this role right now. But really what it is, is just helping. Sometimes as an educator, you can be in the classroom and not realize the power that you have and the things that you're doing that are wonderful and that are very good and that you need to continue to do. And then you don't realize the things that you're doing that you need a little bit of work in. And so as an outside person being able to look in, you can offer that insight to a person because again, educating young minds is gone are the days of you just sit there and listen and sage on the stage kind of approach to teaching. But you have to really know your audience really well and figure out how can I get them to learn and discover this information without just telling them. That was a key component that I often reflected on whenever I was setting up ideas or plans and for teachers and for students. And then after about 10 years of being an instructional coach, I thought, okay, let me see. I I really want to work in a different capacity to support teachers, support students more. And I went into being an administrator. And so now I serve as an assistant principal. And that role has been amazing. It has been also challenging too. It's a eye-opening of all of the administrative components that goes into helping students be successful. And so that's what I do now. And that's kind of the path. And never, honestly, when I went into education, I did not have this plan of what I would do and how I would do it. It was just as things started changing, I realized I had to change too. And so that's when I would go back for more education. After I finished my my master's and I did several years of instructional coaching, I realized that if I wanted to continue to be on the cutting edge and help our students and develop their minds in the way that the world is changing, I need to also do that. And so I went back and decided to do curriculum instruction in a doctorate program at Mercer University. I specifically studied curriculum instruction broadly and went into looking at African-American males as they transitioned from elementary school to middle school and what type of behavior scenarios are they involved in and what are the outcomes of that? Because many times in education as well as in society, African-American males are a population that is looked at in terms of how are they being successful and being a daughter of a single of a dad. I mean, I was raised by my father. So he raised me as a single parent, having a husband, having two boys myself. I realized that the male influence, African and male influence, the things that they experience, what society teaches them, how much, you know, goes into that and the impact that it has on society as a whole. And so I wanted to give a little bit of attention to that in my dissertation. Now with those experiences from schools and education, and teaching and practicing, I continue to strive to learn, to grow, to help support public education in the best way that I can. Wow, thank you so much. I want us to use this to go to the next aspect that I want to talk about is that, again, as an OBGYN, I see young women that have made decisions that they necessarily did not want to make, but situations in their lives, in their home environment, in the schools, and at times just unresolved conflict drove them into making certain decisions that have now led from one thing to another. 
it would be nice if the young women could identify the crisis and the conflict and get help yes. with resolution so that it's not one thing leading to another. Right. Can you speak some into that? Yes, that's an important thing. Conflict resolution, helping young girls deal with these conflicts. And for example, one situation that I recently dealt with, there was a young lady who went into a classroom and she looked over at a group of students. And when she looked over at a group of students, they referenced some things that she felt like it was towards her. They were saying things like, why don't she go back to this school or why is she here and and laughing about it. And so that angered her tremendously to the point where she could not concentrate at all. And so she was so mad that she stormed out of the classroom, which the teacher's like, what is going on? And so one of the ways that we approach addressing conflicts like this, because for a young person, this is their world, their peers, their... (laughs) interactions day to day, this is their world. And for them, it felt like the world was ending for her. So the look, you can think of it, oh, that's so simple. Somebody's looking at you. They made a comment, just walk by it. No, not for that young lady. She, on top of that, this young lady has a lot of health problems, a lot of concerns with her family, often having to go see the nurse for a variety of reasons, just not looking like she was well taken care of just from day to day. So she already has these community, home situations going on that challenges her. Then she comes into a scenario and she's relatively new to the school. So then you come into the scenario of, okay, my peers, my social situation, you feel like somebody's talking about you, you feel alone by yourself, you already don't feel good about yourself. So it's compounding. And so if that situation is not carefully handled, this young lady might choose to go down a path to look for comfort to look for being a part of something. And so one of the tools that we try to use is instead of, cause this young lady, I'm using this as an example to make a general point, instead of just saying, okay, let's move you away from this young man. Let's just get you out of this classroom. Okay, let's move you away. Let's try to see how we can resolve it. Because sometimes just moving the situation away is not always the answer. I'm not saying all the time. I'm just saying in some situations, it is better to teach somebody how to resolve the situation so that they can feel empowered to handle themselves and find resolutions as opposed to I'm hurt, I'm bothered, I'm going to seek out something unhealthy as a result. And so what's done was listen to the young lady, her experience, listen to the young man who she felt was attacking to her. So I heard the scenario of the young lady heard the scenario, the young man said that he was simply talking about somebody else. They were laughing about another situation. She happened to think that it was her. It angered her. He was upset because he was blamed about something. So anyway, there's multiple perspectives of the situation, right? But these are the types of things we have to deal with in education. I mean, we get involved. (laughs) What's going on in, in this situation? We have to get details. We have to get perspectives. We have to ensure that the person is being heard. Doing all of that makes the person feel validated in what they feel. You make the person feel understood. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help them understand what you have to say. I'm not going to be dismissive about it. I value it. I'm going to address it. And we're going to try to find a resolution. And so the outcome was, hey, do you understand that they weren't talking about you in this situation? Do you understand he felt that he was being accused of something he wasn't guilty of and why that would anger him? 
and helping young people understand different perspectives, either in the middle of their conflict or teaching them ahead of time. We have programs in place that really address the social emotional learning of a student, helping them to know the difference between good relationships, healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships and being able to teach it in a programmatic way where you're presenting information, sharing it, but also being able to model it, helping them to be active with it when they have their own scenarios. And so that goes into building up the young lady, that young lady's period, because students need to understand there is a way to resolve these conflict and you can walk away from a situation and feel validated, feel resolved and feel confident in who you are and not have to feel dismissed, ignored. And then you go seek out unhealthy things and unhealthy lifestyles to feel that comfort that we all want and that affirmation that we all want. You can be affirmed in this situation by getting it resolved. But the practice of that is tough. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes insight. It takes really listening, asking the right questions. And so when you're dealing with hundreds of students and you have scenario after scenario, it can be challenging in those environments, but that's what we practice. Those are the programs that we have in place to help our students just somewhat deal with these conflicts that are going to naturally come up. Conflicts naturally happen. This is not an unheard of situation in life, but the best way to deal with it is to hear the scenarios unbiased as best as possible, hear what the conflict is and try to find a mutual resolution to it rather than running away from it, if at all possible. Thank you so much for that comment, Dr. Monday. Thank you. I want you to speak to the effects of a behavioral intervention intended to reduce unprotected sex. What intervention or standard individual counseling can, for instance, schools provide? Schools often use programs that are in place to help students be aware of the risks of early sexual interaction as opposed to waiting until adulthood or if you have a long-term monogamous relationship. We use programs to help guide that so that it's not based in value. Since we're dealing with a wide variety of society, right? We, people have all different views about different things. So we focus on using programs that offer a health-based perspective, what's healthy for you. Oftentimes, having sex early leads to emotional turmoil, early meaning before adulthood. It often leads to sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies, and these things lead into adulthood if you get involved with them at an early age. And so the programs that we have are limited. We do offer it, but it is not something that is day-to-day offering in terms of sex education. It is a time frame every year that is offered. And schools across different states have different regulations and procedures. The one I'm most familiar with, it is over a period of, they have about six lessons for each grade level where they study, what do you already know? There's some type of assessment to find out what students already know. And then there are activities, there are videos, scenarios provided, and the students get involved, learn, answer questions about it. And then there's a post-assessment to see how much a student has grown now that they have this additional knowledge. The beginning really is exploratory. 
for students. Like I mentioned, I think a little bit earlier about decision making. The beginning also talks about relationships. What's a good relationship versus a bad relationship? And defining that, putting words to it, giving language to it, asking about it. Also, it addresses how someone thinks about themselves. There's one activity where the students have to write for 60 seconds. They start off writing all the good things that happened yesterday. So they, the teacher will say, all right, ready, set, go. And they time in all the good things that happened yesterday. They write it down and then they stop. And then the teacher will say, okay, let's write down all the bad things that happened. You got 60 seconds, go. And so at the end, the teacher will say, well, was it easier to write down the good things or the bad things? And typically what happens is the students will say, oh, it's easier to write down the bad things. And so what the point of that is to help students realize that we tend to think about negative things more often. And when you think about negative things, it affects how you feel about yourself. And when it affects how you feel about yourself and the negativity that might go on in your mind, that is going to affect what you do, the actions that you take. And so really helping students to think better about themselves through that, discovering that, oh, okay, I need to think better about myself. And so sometimes we'll give them little techniques like see it, state it, and then start it. You know, let's envision yourself. Well, what do you want to be? For a couple of years, I sponsored something with a school that I was a part of. A young One of the teachers kind of started a program, and it was called Dream Girls. And so I would get with these girls once a week and we would just talk about things. What's going on in your life? How do you feel? And of course, they would talk about the typical things, girl drama. Uh, they would talk about boys, who they liked and who they didn't like. They would talk about fights that they had. They would talk about their family and they would talk about their dreams. It was called Dream Girls. And I wanted to know what dreams did they have? And some of them talked about how they wanted to go into the army or be a heart surgeon. But the heartbreaking part of it was that some of them felt like they would openly say, I'm not smart enough to do that. I'm just going to. And they would put themselves in a lower position because they didn't how they felt about themselves. And it just broke your heart because you're thinking, no, you have intelligence, you have skills, capabilities. And often it, I would see this is how I would determine it, the skills that they had. If I held up a phone in my hand, they could tell me what type of phone I had, how old it was, what year it came out, what I need to get next, what case I was having. I barely flipped open my phone. They told me all the components of it just like that. I didn't even know what type of phone I had. And so what that showed me was that you have some skills there. If you knew all of that just by a quick glance at what I had, that shows me that you have the ability to analyze. You have the ability to make observations and draw conclusions. You have the ability to make conjectures about what I should do next. And so all of those things let me know you have the capabilities. Let's understand you do have the capabilities. We just got to channel it in the right way. And plus when they would analyze situations between the two of them, quickly able to articulate, dissect arguments and why somebody was wrong, what they did. And so I had to build those, see those qualities in them, build it up in them and let them know these are all the qualities that you need to move forward in the career path that you want. And so these types of things that are in place, whether it be through some type of program that we have, social emotional program, or if you're mentoring students, it requires a student being able to tease apart things that can be easily confusing, giving them the language and the space for it, presenting it to them in a manner that is safe, 
not threatening to them, where they have to feel like they have to be ashamed of it or feel insecure about it or fearful, but that it is safe to talk about these things. These are things that are happening to people. These are things that we want to either prevent because making unhealthy choices, sexual choices early in life can lead to other risk factors and negative outcomes in your future life. The benefits Let's talk about not only the risk factors, but also the rewards for waiting. There are rewards involved here. We're not just all talking about all the negative things that we're trying to avoid, but what are the rewards from this? You'll feel healthier about yourself. Your emotions are in a better place. And then you're able to be more assertive because sometimes children may feel, young people in my experience, they feel like they shouldn't do something, but they don't have the words. They don't know how to be assertive about the right thing. And so the programs that are in place help them and teach them to be assertive, teach them to be assertive about the right things that they should stand up for. And so having those scenarios and having those situations, those programs in place, being able to have mentorships, being able to have counselors in the school who are able to talk to those students, let them get it out, give them some clear direction and ways to change the path that they're on really helps our young ladies in those situations because they're able to think better. They're able to feel like I have a space to talk about it. Students are able to see that not only do I have that space, but I'm not alone in that. You know, sometimes you feel, our students feel that they are alone in that. And so they have nowhere to go and where to turn and making students feel comfortable that they're not alone is important and helping them make healthy decisions. Thank you for listening to Cocoa Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. If you have any comments or any ways in which you want to assist our program, please send us an email at info at bcfndfoundation.org, info at bcfndfoundation.org. Dr. Monday, thank you so much for the insight and just all the knowledge that you've shared with us today. I just want to ask you, do you have any closing thoughts as we look at some of the root causes of why there uh, problems with teenage pregnancy, unhealthy behaviors and consequences. As we look at these root causes, do you have any final thoughts that you can speak to us on? Yes. I think in, we like to come from a preventive mindset and approach. We start as young as we can with me working in middle school, sixth grade, so it's 11, 12-year-olds, really giving them those skills, those internal skills, those interpersonal skills to be assertive with relationships. And so being able to define what are healthy relationships, what are unhealthy relationships. Also being able to handle themselves when there's conflict, knowing how to acknowledge someone else's perspective on a matter, giving students those type of skills in the beginning early on, and then reinforcing them by helping them to develop what vision they have for their life. Because maybe by seventh, eighth grade, they're able to envision the next few years. Kind of early on in life, you're not able to envision, you're probably just only able to envision tomorrow, right? But as you get older, you can think about the next few years. So helping students to see their dreams, write their dreams, find their strengths. These are all preventive measures that we take into account and try to teach our students so that 
those decisions that they make are informed decisions. They're not pressured unnecessarily by their peers because they're aware of, you know what, that feels like a peer pressure. That would be an unwise choice because they've heard that language. They've seen scenarios. They've been exposed to having to make conflict resolution. So our goal is to really educate them, give them those skills, give them those preventive measures to avoid risk factors, having sex early, being involved in manipulative, violent relationships, not dealing with conflict in a healthy manner, but dealing with it in an unhealthy manner, working towards helping them to handle those skills. Because in life, we are going to have conflict. In life, you are going to have things that don't go your way. So to have the skills and capabilities to address them is more beneficial than to just ignore them. And when we have scenarios, like for example, there's one young lady I think about over the years that I've been in education where every day going to school required five to six adults to really help this student just sit in the classroom and gain her education. She would wander the building, wander outside, try to escape. And because she was dealing with her mother not being there, she was dealing with her mother being in jail. She was dealing with the pain of that. But the way it came out in school is rage anger, avoidance, running away from adults, trying to guide her and help her. And she was not able to manage that, which is understandable. That's a very painful experience to go through as a young person and not having the space to deal with that and not taking advantage of the space to deal with that, not because of her, but because of the situation she was in, leads to further conflict. So initially it just started with wandering in the building. Then it became trying to escape the entire campus. Then it became not turning, coming to school. Then it became running away from home, stealing different things, being somewhere that you shouldn't be. All these scenarios affecting her own family, siblings, removing them from the school. It starts off, you may think, as just a small situation, but it builds and builds and builds. But having the skills to be able to handle that, to handle, not that it feels good, it never feels good, but having skills to be able to manage it, self-regulate, talk about it, try to resolve it, really helps a person to make better decisions in their life, which would lead to healthier outcomes. So our goal in education as we are working to meet the needs of our students is to really be as much as possible preventive, educate and empower our students so that they can enjoy a healthier life and healthier outcomes. Wow, Dr. Monde, thank you so much for coming to our podcast. I feel very enlightened myself and we definitely are going to have you back. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy, Dr. Sagadi. I've enjoyed it this entire time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.